The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. For those who don't know me, to our guests and visitors, my name is Nick Kidwell. I am the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church and so glad that you have decided to join with us this morning. I know it's no small thing to... uh, visit a new church for the first time, and so we're glad that you are here with us. Well, as I was preparing my message this week, I realized there were a confluence of things coming together, and I wish I could say, in my great wisdom, I had orchestrated all of these things, but I can't say so, and instead I give credit where all credit's due to the Lord. He plans and he knits and he weaves together things to teach us and grow us and makes it evident at times that there's themes for us to learn and be taught in. And this week on Thursday, we finished our final Ecclesiology U class on understanding Catholic teaching and doctrine and interacting with it. In the class, we looked at the differences between Protestant and Catholic theology. And one of the most significant differences between the two theological systems is the root and anchor of authority. In Roman Catholic theology, there's many authority structures within the church that exist, but the most significant being the written and the orally transmitted teachings that the church calls tradition. Together, the church sees tradition and the scriptures as having equal authority with one another, working together to give us all that we need to know about God. This is where a great chasm has become fixed between the Catholic and Protestant theologies. Whereas Catholic theology says that there can be an authoritative and infallible decree that comes through oral tradition and the established teaching office of the church, Protestant theology holds that all authority for our rule of faith in this life rests in the inspired written words of God alone, the scriptures. And though there were many issues involved in the split between the Catholic Church and Protestantism, a split which is now known as the Reformation, which actually uh, today is Reformation Sunday, as Tuesday is considered the beginning of the Reformation, October 31st, 1517. Among this Reformation, the issue of where we draw our authority from was right there at the center of it, among other things. And so again, this is where this confluent of events comes together. Protestant Reformation is seen to have begun October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. He was not looking to start a theological revolt, but rather was calling the church to examine its teachings and rid itself of anything that didn't line up with our ultimate authority for our faith, the word of God. Luther is quoted as saying, Scripture alone is the true Lord and master of all writing and doctrine on earth. This, Luther rightly acknowledged, was the teaching of the Scriptures itself. That it's the sole standard and final authority on all matters of faith. This is what Protestants have come to call sola scriptura, or Scripture alone, which is one of the five solas, faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, Christ alone and to the glory of God alone. And so as we just finished up this class examining the heart of the Reformation, we're a day away from the celebration of it. 
and how it recaptured what the scriptures teach, that Christ reigns supreme in his authority. He saves on the basis of a proclamation of faith. He alone gets the glory for that salvation, and he's given us all that we need for life and godliness in the pages of the scriptures. So as we think about that, finished up this class this Sunday, then naturally in our walk through Matthew, we hit a passage where Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the scribes over their understanding of authority. And he rebukes them for elevating the traditions of men over the received word of God and all that he has commanded. And now while we might think, well, I don't believe in tradition in the way you just described, firmly believe in scripture alone, I hope that we all feel a challenge this morning that each and every one of us must be on guard against the creeping tendency of our human hearts to add to the Word of God in our own ways, and most significantly, the tendency that we all have to add to the requirements for salvation. So God clearly has for us something this morning. I believe that. He's pulled all these things together. I didn't orchestrate this. And I'm eager to see how he uses this time in his Word on our hearts. So please turn with me, if you would now, to Matthew chapter 15, where we'll be reading verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to pray for us this morning as we need the Spirit of God to help us to understand His Word. Father, we ask that you would meet with us this morning. Lord, we are weak and sinful, and yet you and your mercy and grace have sent us your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might know you and be with you. And you, in your mercy and grace, have given us your word, which you have preserved over time, that we might know who you are and your plan for salvation. And we just pray this morning that you would stir our hearts for affection for the salvation you've given us, and help us to anchor ourselves in the full revelation that you've given us through your inspired word. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you've gained from me is given to God, he need not not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is the word of the Lord. Our section this morning is actually part of a larger passage which runs through the end of verse 20. The passage largely centers around the question of purity. What is it that makes us clean? Is it external ceremonial rituals or is it an inward heart disposition? And while we'll touch upon these questions briefly this morning, we're going to primarily spend our time together considering, as we just said, Who has the authority to declare 
What is clean and unclean? Where does our ultimate center of authority come from? In the passage we just read, the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, by way of reminder, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees were a religiously elite group. They were known to be scholars and an authority on the scriptures and the Jewish faith. The scribes, likewise, were not only tasked with preserving and transcribing the scriptures, but also studying it and interpreting it and writing explanations for it. These weren't formal offices that had been handed down through the scriptures, but positions that over time, as a means of shepherding the people of God, had developed in Israel. And so, we've already had a few run-ins between the scribes and the Pharisees with Jesus. They're usually not pleasant, and here we have another. And this time, some bigwigs from Jerusalem come down to see what all this hubbub is about, and this rabbi, this Galilean rabbi named Jesus... And it seems their concern centered around this issue of ceremonial cleanness. At least in this passage, they say to Jesus, verse 2, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now this question is not about simple hygiene practices. In fact, when we read Mark's account, it's not necessarily saying the disciples didn't wash their hands at all. But what they had failed to do was thoroughly wash in a ritualistic fashion that had been taught by the religious leaders. The requirements of ritual hand-washing, particularly when coming from common areas, the marketplace, etc., where a person might be tainted, was a way of purifying oneself before God. The problem is, the only mention of hand-washing in God's word concerned the priests. This was an additional teaching that they had Devised. So the Pharisees are bringing a charge against the disciples, saying they're failing to walk in purity. However, Jesus, being who he is, sees the impurity of their own hearts and calls it into question. He sees in these Pharisees that they had constructed for themselves a man-made system of holiness that set aside the very words of God whom they were saying they wanted to be holy for. It's interesting that the first thing they draw attention to is, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? It seems the greatest offense for them was that these disciples were disobeying the rule of faith that the elders had handed down to the people. These men held themselves to be quite holy. They had created intricate rules that were meant to ensure holiness and purity before God. And they patted themselves on the backs for upholding all of these ceremonial rituals. And so they, in their lofty towers of self-righteousness, are offended. When the disciples break the practices that these men and those who came before them had set up. Yet Jesus does not waste any time in calling out this false purity. They say, why do you break the tradition of the elders with a necessary implication that in doing so, they are unclean and ungodly? And so Jesus turns the tables right back on them and says, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He then goes into this discussion about property consecrated to the temple. Essentially, what he raises here is that there was a practice of a person being able to dedicate goods to the temple 
which would prohibit the use of those goods for any purposes outside of temple use. This in and of itself is not necessarily a problem. But the system that this tradition had established allowed for some to use this as a means to deny societally rightful property from one's parents. The scripture commanded that one honor his father and mother, and throughout the scriptures we see part of honoring our parents or caring for those in our household is providing for them appropriately. Yet, what was happening was this temple consecration was being used, whether purposefully or not, whether purposefully out of spite or ignorantly without realizing what was happening, it was being used to prevent at times individuals' parents from being cared for as the goods that would have provided for them are now dedicated to the temple and unable to be touched. And what seems to be the case from these religious leaders was that they created these strict rules not found in the scriptures about this whole practice and they would allow people to deny the needed provisions to their parents and would also prevent them from taking back the goods if they realized the position that they had put them and their parents in. Essentially, what Jesus sees is a system which disregards care for one's family, honor for one's parents for the sake of these self-constructed rules and regulations about temple goods that God had nowhere in the scriptures commanded or prescribed. These men were so confident in themselves about their purity. They were basing their self-assessment often on their own religious structures that they had created. And they were putting the weight of these religious structures. Oh, there we go. Putting the weight of these. Told you the Lord would be with us today. (laughs) Putting the weight of these religious structures on the shoulders of the people. And at times, not only leading the people to follow a godless ritualistic religion, which saw the outward actions as being the purifying agent rather than the inward heart, but they were also setting up rules that led people to break what had been clearly commanded by God. This then leads Jesus to say, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Which gets to the heart of what we're diving in here together this morning. Who defines worship? What makes us clean? Who has the authority to declare it to, declare it to be so? These men, though they claimed and believed they were serving God, were actually very far from him, the Lord says. They failed to understand what he actually required for one to be clean. And they had turned to themselves and their man-made systems for their cleansing, judging others along the way, puffed up with self-righteousness and leading many astray. And so, before we get into the discussion next week deeper on what does make us clean, this week's discussion is, who says? And as we see in our passage, the word of God alone establishes right worship of God and leads us to salvation. The word of God alone establishes right worship of God and leads us to salvation. 
So we'll look at two things. God's word is our ultimate authority, and we must be careful not to add to it. Already throughout Matthew, we've seen over and over again Matthew say, this took place to fulfill the scriptures, or we heard Jesus draw from the scriptures to combat Satan's attacks, to teach people how to live in light of the kingdom, and to point out the error in others' thinking. Often Jesus will say, have you not read, or you're thinking this because you know not the scriptures. We speak often about how God is communicative. We speak often together about the fact that God has spoken to us through the scriptures. But this morning, what I want to point out to us and draw our attention to is that it's not just that God is a communicative God and he's given us the scriptures, but that the scriptures are and were intended to be our final authority on all matters of faith. Jesus is clearly establishing here what the final trump card is in this argument. They say, why do you break the traditions of the elders? And Jesus says, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? He says in a showdown between tradition and God's words delivered in the scriptures, God's word wins. He then uses the word of God to rebuke these men with a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Though God certainly has spoken outside of written communication, we have recorded in the scriptures over and over again stories of men and women receiving words from God. And though God uses his prophets and kings and apostles to teach and transmit their teachings orally to the people while they were alive, what is clear is that God has always intended that the normative standard of faith through the ages communicating the redemptive plan and the things necessary for us to know about God, to commune with him, and to have access to the salvation that he was working out. His intent was always that this plan and the center of our faith would be passed down through a written word. I believe God did this to ensure faithful preservation of his teaching and the teaching that he proved to be of him through the prophets and various leaders over Israel's history. When God had a new element to the redemptive plan that all believers needed to know, he would call an individual, he would visibly and publicly provide proof to the people that he was with this prophet, king, scribe, whoever it may be. He would prove that his spirit was upon them, and then he would use them to speak to the people. And then would charge them or lead those around them to capture this authoritative teaching through the written word. God told Moses to write down what he had been shown. We see many other places where God told the prophets to write down what he had said. This does not mean then that God never spoke to any other individuals. It doesn't mean that everything those prophets taught or received from the Lord is recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. But what it does mean... And what we see, the scriptures throughout, Jesus himself and the New Testament authors affirm, is that God has established that our normative rule for understanding him comes only through the written word, which he has faithfully given us and miraculously preserved over time. Second Timothy says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This captures the sentiments of all the biblical authors, old and new. What God has given us in the scriptures is sufficient for us and what we need to understand about him. There's no need for any other authority to add to the word of God to equip us. The word of God is given to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us, and to make us complete in our God. And as Jesus makes clear, all of the written word was written to show us the living word himself. In Luke 24, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he appears to some of his disciples. And we're told, and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. God has intended to communicate with us. God himself establishes how a person can be saved, how a person can be made clean, and God has seen fit in his great mercy to inscripturate for us this truth that we might have a standard of faith unshakable that reveals to us who he is and this great plan of salvation that reveals to us Jesus Christ, his son. It's through the scriptures that the clear and simple gospel is recorded that it's by faith and faith alone in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we stand justified and forgiven before our God, the great hope of humanity. That's the point of the scriptures, to show us where real purity comes from. It comes from God through Christ, through his Son, by the power of his Holy Spirit. Yet these men, these Pharisees, had said that there was another authority that people needed to listen to, to truly know God and to be pure, their tradition. They had taken God's commands and they had created further fences around the people that he himself had not commanded. They took God's commands and they added to them. Out of a claim to be seeking purity, and in so doing, they created a law-based, works-based faith that overlooked the heart and ultimately led these men to slay the Savior, the Holy Son of God himself. This is why Martin Luther said, why the apostles and the early church taught, and why, as Protestants, we declare that it is Scripture alone that is our basis of authority. Now, that can raise a few questions. And there are nuances to be discussed. First, God does intend to use us to teach. God does command me and other pastors to preach. God does command his people to submit to the leadership of the church. God ordained that the apostles would be an authoritative teacher to the church. Yet in all of that, what's the thing that gives anyone authority? Is it the role itself? Was Paul authoritative simply because he was an apostle? Do I have an authority in some sense simply because I am a pastor? The answer that we see in Scripture is no. Our authority is always derived from God and from the Word of God. And ultimately, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what all the Scriptures point to and find their fulfillment in. 
That's why Paul says, even if I or an angel from heaven come preaching another gospel to you, let him be accursed. Paul doesn't say, don't worry, you can believe everything that comes out of my mouth simply because I'm an apostle. He says, this commissioning was to preach to you the word of God. And if I fail to do that, you must not listen to me. He's expecting that people use their powers of discernment and to use the revelation that they had already been given, in his case, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and all the Old Testament scriptures, as a guide even to his own teaching. That's why throughout Matthew, they're always pointing back, this was to fulfill the scriptures. This was, you want affirmation, this is from God? Hear from his word. We see this in the book of Acts. The people turn to the scriptures when the apostles come and proclaim the news of Christ. They think, if this teaching is true, it must line up with God's word. When I preach to you, yes, God has given me an, a level of authority, but that authority is only rooted in God's word. And I certainly am not to be bringing anything new to you. You must be students of God's word. We'll talk about this in a minute. And if I try to add anything outside of the written word to the rule of faith, you must reject it. I'm only here to make known and help you understand what has already been clearly revealed. I'm not here to add to it. Which brings us to a second question then. How do we know the scriptures are complete? Well, as we've said, all of the scriptures are about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the work that he came to do. Jesus himself commissioned and validated the apostles to be spokesmen for the gospel. It's then the apostles themselves, or those closely tied to them, that recorded the prophetic teaching for us. But then there was given no indication that beyond the gospel message that they've recorded for us in the New Testament that there would be a further similar authoritative teaching office that would continue to persist in being able to write further scriptures or declare infallible truth. But not only was there no indication that such a thing would exist, but from the nature of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, there is no need. Nor should there be any expectation of ours that there is anything further normatively binding teaching that we will need prior to Christ's return. We have all that we need in the scriptures. The Old Testament, they knew it wasn't done yet. They were waiting for another word from God because this plan of, of salvation and redemption and the Messiah and the Christ, it hadn't yet been fully revealed. They got it. We have it in the New Testament. We're not waiting for any further knowledge. We're just waiting for him to come back. Now that said, again, we're still called to help each other understand the scriptures. Reading commentaries and, and thoughts about the scriptures is good and right, but we must test them against the scriptures. And as a church who believes in the ongoing gifts of the Holy Spirit, who believes there's such a thing as a lowercase p prophecy in the church, which the scriptures themselves talk about, we aren't saying God can't speak in personal ways to us. He can. Scripture makes clear he'll give us encouragements and exhortations to one another. 
At times, he might reveal something to us about another person that we couldn't possibly have known so that we can minister to them. I've had this occur to me. The scriptures say men and women, young and old, will prophesy and dream dreams in the age of the Spirit, and that's the age that we now live in. However, none of these things will declare new authoritative revelation for the church that is binding on believers or adding anything new to the commands of God or redemptive revelation. Any words, any nudges we believe are from the Spirit of God, any exhortations, all must be tested against the Scriptures. And none supersede or even parallel the Scriptures. God has made clear the the operations of teaching and exhortation and even little p prophecy, all are to be regulated by the scriptures. He gives us the scriptures as a standard we can use to discern if we are truly hearing from him. It's a gift. Paul says, the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation. And as we said earlier, they train us and equip us for every good work. There's no need for anything further to be written or spoken authoritatively, infallibly for the church, nor was there any expectation that such further revelation should occur. When we think otherwise, things like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and even doctrines such as Islam, or doctrines such as papal infallibility arise, saying something else is needed. And in each and every one of these cases, that something else either discards Christ entirely with a wholesale recreation of God, or diminishes his glory significantly and distorts his image. Every time. Mormonism, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, They all claim, yes, the scriptures are from God, but, and then they change them. We've received the very words of God. The scriptures alone stand as our guide and as our key to knowing God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we have to be careful not to add to it. So, God's word is our ultimate authority, and we must be careful not to add to his word. When God gave the commandments to Moses, he said, Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I commanded you, nor take away from it. At the end of the scriptures, in the final chapter of Revelation, God says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city. These are grave warnings. Warnings that we see had not been heeded by these Pharisees. As we said, they had taken their tradition and had, in effect, elevated it, not only on par with the written word of God, but had used it to supersede the word of God. I'm going to use another example from Catholic theology. If you're here and you have a background in Catholicism, um, or you yourself are Catholic, no, this is probably the first time from the pulpit I've ever talked about Catholicism. 
But again, we are on the eve of the Reformation, considering that this topic speaks directly to matters that have been a great divide in the church for a thousand years. And again, we just as a church considered these things together in our Ecclesiology U class. So as again, as we looked at the Catholic teaching on tradition, we discussed how the Catholic Church believes that the tradition of the church is of an authority equal with the scriptures, and over time is bringing about the fullness of the teaching that we need as believers. It's taught in the church that the authoritative tradition of the church need not necessarily be found in the pages of scripture itself. There can be further necessary revelation that's needed for us that's been, as claimed, passed down over time. One such teaching would be the sinlessness of Mary and her bodily assumption to heaven without having died. This is official doctrine of the church, which one should believe to be in right standing in the church. This is tradition, which is, handed, which is added on as a requirement of faith that is binding on all believers everywhere. Yet this teaching is not found anywhere in the scriptures themselves. We see the scribes and the Pharisees having added through orally transmitted tradition to the commandments of scriptures as well, binding the consciences of the Jewish people. Jesus rebukes them for it. Never once does Jesus appeal to tradition. Jesus always appeals to the written word, which God has given as our basis and foundation for truth. Now, you may be thinking, well, again, I don't believe in tradition, capital T. Or I'm not seeking to write any new scripture, so I'm good there. But before we too quickly decide that this isn't a risk we face or something that's important to us, we need to consider together the very real temptation that we all at times likely have given into and will feel. We may not be looking to write any new pages of Scripture, but neither were the Pharisees and the scribes. Neither is the Roman Catholic Church. But both are in practice adding to the requirements of knowledge needed to know God and what he requires of us for salvation. We do the same things, just less officially so. Sometimes from church to church. Rules and regulations become elevated to a point to where it seems very much you're in or out based on how you raise your kids, so on and so forth. And sometimes as individuals, we create our own theological understandings that we use to judge ourselves and others of their right standing before God. Before giving some modern examples, let's consider some of the examples we see within the scriptures themselves in the New Testament church. One of the most obvious ones is the issue of circumcision. This seems foreign to us, but remember, the people of Israel had been very used to the sacrificial system and the purity laws that God had actually established for them in his word. And so when Christ comes along and he fulfills those things and he says that they're no longer needed because of his work on the cross, because he has fulfilled them, many understandably had to wrestle with this. It's a total paradigm shift. Yet we see many who I'm sure felt they were seeking to be faithful to God declare that circumcision was still a necessity. They felt to truly be in right standing with God, circumcision is still a thing. 
Read the book of Galatians and you'll see how Paul, speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, sternly reminds this church not to add to the gospel any requirements or works of the flesh to be saved. We see another example in the Corinthian church. These believers, who if you read the book, certainly had no room to be judging the faithfulness and purity of others, yet they did, they'd created a system of judging faithfulness based off gifts of the Holy Spirit. They were saying that some of the gifts indicated spiritual superiority and true empowerment by God's Spirit. Paul yet again reminds, the Lord had not said or commanded such a thing. Such is not true. We are a varied body with varied gifts. And their own false hierarchy was created not out of devotion to God, but loveless self-promotion. Or another example we see in the Corinthian church is their elevation of certain apostles and teachers as true guides. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, to which Paul says, it is only Christ that we follow. Do not add to the requirement of God's word. There is no Paul, there is no Apollos, there is no Cephas. There's no camp that is correct. There is just Jesus Christ. Or Paul yet again, Paul had a lot of work to do in these churches. Paul yet again addressing the disputes about genealogies, controversies in the law. You can imagine these people sitting around the table judging each other and condemning each other's views about the genealogies and what exactly they all meant, the law and such, where Paul says such disputes are unprofitable and worthless. They were adding to God's word by requiring complete agreement on matters that might have been less important or less clear, intentional, intentionally so by God. And still we see more. Food sacrificed to idols. Can we eat it or not? How into angels should we be? The list can go on and on. The disputes are never ending. As you listen to that, I wonder if you already can think of some modern examples of such things. We are to be people passionate about Christ, committed to following him, earnestly seeking him and desiring to do his will, taking holiness very seriously. And there is much in the scriptures that is clear, much that does not leave room for debate, especially in the central matters of faith, who God is. However, part of the glorious nature of the gospel is that we've been given the spirit of God that we no longer are bound to the law in the way the Old Testament believers were, but instead following the principles laid out for us in the Scriptures, those things that are made abundantly clear for us, and the example that we have in Christ Jesus, we're told to use our powers of discernment, as Hebrews tells us, to distinguish good from evil. So what does that mean, and how does it apply to not adding to the Word of God like these Pharisees did? I'm about to share some examples, and I'm sure some of them might be challenging or uncomfortable to hear. But it's important that we hear them, because we do not want to fall into these traps that the Pharisees and the scribes did, because it does damage to the people of God and to ourselves. They, in seeking to pursue purity, had created fences, especially around other people, where God had not. They placed requirements on others where God did not. They judged others over matters which God does not. 
And we don't want to be people who do the same thing, adding to the requirements of God's law for salvation. For instance, the word makes clear to us we ought not get drunk. But the word doesn't make clear that one should never drink. Now, there are many wise and good reasons to avoid alcohol. There's many godly convictions that many have holding them back from consuming it. But we don't step beyond the bounds of Scripture and bind the consciences of other believers that no alcohol may ever be consumed under any circumstance. God has not said that. Another example is eschatology, end times theology. There are some things about the end that are clear. Christ will return. Christ will judge the living and the dead. There is heaven and hell. Christ will reign victorious and will claim those who are his. But there are other things that are less clear. Again, intentionally so by God. The timing of these events, the ordering of these events, and so on. Just as believers ought not argue over genealogies, we don't bind the consciences of other believers where Scripture has not clearly bound them. That's why our understanding of the end times is not one of the theological basis of our church. We study it, we consider it, we cling to those things that are obvious, but we don't bind others where Scripture doesn't bind them. One of the most tempting, I would say, in our day is the realm of political thought. God makes clear certain moral matters. God makes clear we ought to submit to those in authority over us. God makes clear governments are supposed to do good. But what Scripture doesn't make clear is how we as believers living in a secular world, in a form of government where we have some ability to influence the outcomes of our political system, a system which is often run by godless people who have a mixed bag of perspectives, some right, some not, with a mixed bag of agendas, God's not made clear how in that position we as believers are to cast every ballot and proceed in every situation. He just hasn't. There's room for godly wisdom and discernment. And it's a great burden of mine as a church that we be passionately committed to our Lord seeking to do his will together. But I do pray, particularly as we head into next year, into another election season before us, that we don't judge other believers off of standards that God has not set up. I've heard people say that to be a believer, you must vote X, Y, or Z. Such a statement is outside the bounds of Scripture. Now again, there are godly convictions. There are things we need to pursue but we must not bind the consciences of others where Scripture does not do so. And God's designed it this way so that we can walk in the variety of situations by the guidance of His Spirit in the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. So where does all of this leave us? Now, I don't know about you, but it leaves me on my knees. All I think through this is, Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you. I realize that to honor the Lord and not add to his word, I must know his word deeply. I must meditate on it often and seek by the power of his spirit to apply it as he leads me for his glory and his praise. And it also means I must recognize at times others will have under the influence of the same spirit 
because of their own unique situations, have different approaches to some things. God will have different works for some people to do and different leadings of God on how to handle certain situations. I want to walk with my brothers and sisters, helping them to learn to trust the Lord. I want us to be seeking together the Lord's wisdom and in humility and charity, pursuing him, not setting up new rules and new standards, but better understanding together what he's called us to and how to faithfully, each of us, live that out in light of all that he has said. Church, we need the Spirit of God. It can be easy for us to be like these Pharisees with good intentions, at least at first. I want to be holy. I want to be pure. And then we begin to elevate these things again, even in judgment on ourselves, where God has not said. I'll give you an example. I used to journal every day for like eight years. I had a prayer journal. And it started to feel very burdensome towards the end, but I felt I had to keep doing this. It had become a part of my religious practice, and I had to confront one day and realize, God has not commanded me that I journal every single day. I'm still saved if I don't journal today. But I had to accept that, because I had created a new requirement for myself to walk faithfully before the Lord. Now, some days maybe it would have been what I needed to do, but not every day. That's not a requirement of God. We need the Spirit of God. God has made it that way. He wants us to be dependent upon Him. And the Spirit will provide what we need. And for most situations in our lives, God has very clearly laid out how we're to walk. We shouldn't murder people. We shouldn't hate. We shouldn't go back to our series and living in light of the kingdom. There's a lot of very clear things that should dictate how we walk. And he's done so through his word. And in our pursuit of holiness, of discerning his will, we take comfort remembering that we are only made pure by him. We are saved through Christ and Christ alone. That gives us great comfort as we seek to be discerning, as we seek to know the will of the Lord, knowing even if I make a misstep, the blood of Jesus Christ covers me. If you're here today and you don't know Christ Jesus, know this, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he died and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be saved. That is what the scriptures teach. I refuse to add to that message of salvation. If we turn to him, we certainly will pursue faithful obedience We certainly have many things to learn, but that simple message of salvation is clear. And the scriptures ensure we never forget it, and we are always led by it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning aware of our desperate need. We pray that you, by your spirit, help us to cling to the scriptures, understand the scriptures, Lord, we ask that you keep us from false purity and self-righteousness. Keep us from adding to your word the way these Pharisees and these scribes had. That you keep us from divisions based on personal convictions rather than the word of God. 
Thank you, Lord, that you move and speak to us individually. Thank you that at times you give us different convictions on certain situations and things, and that you use us as a body to accomplish your work in this way. Help us to walk alongside each other, linking arms through the unity that we have in one spirit, in one confession of Christ, one baptism into Christ. Lord, unify us in love. And help us to walk in discernment with each other, not adding to what you have said, but loving it and walking discerningly with it in our hearts. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.